Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Monday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up in just a moment, it's International Women's Day. And ahead of a virtual program taking place today to celebrate this global event, Advocate and Policy Advisor Salima abdul Ghaffour joins me to talk about the achievements and challenges women and girls face on a global scale, as well as how the current COVID-19 pandemic is affecting millions of women. Women are bearing the burden of being caretakers and breadwinners in the family and are impacted greatly by it. We know that if you're poor or of color, you likely have a harder time accessing treatment accessing a vaccine. That conversation in just a moment, but first our daily update on the coronavirus pandemic. Governor Brian Kemp's office is reporting over 900,000 Georgia seniors have received at least one vaccine dose. In a release, the governor's office states Georgia has vaccinated 64% of its senior population and cited that was better than a national average of seniors receiving at least one dose, according to the CDC and the American Community Survey data which is 58%. Meanwhile, the state confirmed two new coronavirus deaths on Sunday, and that brings the total to 15,598 Georgians who have died due to the virus since March. And more than 900 new coronavirus cases were also reported yesterday. The Georgia Department of Public Health reports 828,336 coronavirus cases in total have been confirmed since last March. Coming up next, reflecting on International Women's Day. This is Closer Look. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Today, March 8th, is International Women's Day. First observed in the early 1900s. Here in the U.S., it was on February 28th in 1909. Then the idea came to celebrate and honor women around the world. And also to bring awareness of the many challenges women and girls face. Now, this year's theme for International Women's Day is Choose to Challenge. And at the time of this broadcast, the International Women's Forum of Georgia will celebrate International Women's Day with a virtual program. It will include leaders from nonprofits, public policy, education, and relief work. 
But ahead of this afternoon's event, Salima Abdul-Ghafour joins me for a conversation about the current plight of women and girls globally and here in the U.S. Now, Salima is a lecturer, activist, editor, and chief of staff for the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Salima, welcome. Good to see you again. We've met before in the past. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. I am a longtime listener, and so is my mom. She said to tell you hello. You're doing a great job in the community. <laughs> I'm so, so honored to be here speaking with you. Now, mom is also affectionately known as, is it Umi? Umi, yeah, yeah. You didn't think I knew that, did you? No, but you, you got cred. You did some research. <laughs> that's fantastic. Yeah, we, that's what we call her, Umi. So for people who are listening, it's U-M-I, Umi. Umi. Well, let's begin there then. Tell me about Umi and the influence of of her on your life and just women in general as we celebrate oh, this day. That That is such a, ooh I, ooh, I got goosebumps. You know, I am Hassan and Nabila's daughter. I am Bessie Marshall and Maude Daniel's granddaughter. I am Kayla's auntie. Women have been incredible, you know, from my great grandmother who was a midwife in Georgia, um, all the way up to my little baby niece, uh, Bellamy Blake up in New England. Women have been incredible influencers on me and really showed me how to sit in the midst of, of a family of chaos in a country and a community and thrive in spite of it all. Um, I, I am who I am because of the incredible women um, that I'm connected to and who have come before me and, and who'll come after me. And I'm just trying to do my part to be as helpful as possible to my family, to my loved ones and to my community, um, especially on this day, International mm -hmm. Women's Day. I'm so, I'm so grateful that we get to honor so many women. As it relates to this day, and you think about the current global state of women and girls, while there have been a lot of achievements and strides, there are still so many other, so many issues. Um, for you, what are those, and I know there are probably a lot, but what are those top critical issues that you see facing women on a global scale? Yeah, so there, there are significant issues for women, and there have been for, for many centuries across, you know, both here and abroad. I tend to look through the lens of, of optimism, um, but also reality. So if one lens is optimism, the other lens is, is what is the reality on the ground. And women and children in the United States and abroad are struggling. We're str we, we are struggling economically, we're struggling socially, we're struggling politically. The good news is that there is significant work happening here and abroad um, to look at, to challenge these narratives, to challenge uh, the institutions and to challenge the way women have participated in everything from your your mosque or your church mm -hmm. or your temple to your educational institution to your political system. Um, we know that even, you know, for example, the COVID-19 pandemic, 70% mm -hmm. of health of uh, frontline health workers are women. Women are bearing the burden of being caretakers and breadwinners in the family and are impacted greatly by it. We know that if you're poor or of color, you likely have a harder time accessing treatment, accessing a vaccine. So th there is some definitely some daunting data right now about women and girls in the mm -hmm. world. 
But the great thing is that more and more people in the United States and abroad are saying, no, no more, no more. We cannot move into the future with half of our population unheard and in crisis and in peril. So while the data is daunting, there are some signs of hope and um, we've got lots of examples of women and girls uh, here in Atlanta and abroad, um, around the nation and abroad working on these issues. Well, let's stay with the pandemic for a moment because according to the United Nations Women, it is estimated that women who are poor and marginalized will face an even higher risk of COVID-19 transmission and fatalities. They also cite a loss of livelihood and increased violence. Yeah. So we know that the domestic violence rates have gone up here and abroad significantly because women are confined to close quarters with abusers. Women and children are confined to close quarters with abusers and don't have the opportunity to leave or to get help or um, to interact with a local authority that might um, intervene and and stop the situation. We also know that most, 75% of the vaccine that has been distributed for COVID-19 has gone to the 10 wealthy nations in the world, Mm -hmm. uh, one of which is ours. So that puts us in a place of tremendous privilege. But if we know nothing else, we know that, you know, what happens here happens there and what happens there happens here. We are all interconnected. So it behooves us from a a place of enlightened self-interest that we make sure that all countries, all countries, all countries have access to uh, the vaccine and to treatment. Um, You know, my day job is working with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation Mm -hmm. and our our investments have, have been primarily to help address this issue of, of equity in vaccine distribution. And while you know there are some hopeful signs that we're scaling up appropriately in this country, we have a lot of work to do to make sure that uh, the countries that don't have access to the vaccine because of a variety of different reasons get it for their people as well. I want to shift for a moment and focus on 2020. When you think mm-hmm. about the pandemic, which we're still in, the protests, of course, politics leading up to what happened to January 6th, the day our nation's capital was attacked. How do you sum all this up? Ah, ah, you, can't, you can't sum it up. I'm grateful that I live here in the state of Georgia, in the city of Atlanta. I'm grateful that um, people like Stacey Abrams stood up for us when, when everyone thought that she was... Um, a failure and wouldn't make it. I'm grateful that she had innovative ideas, that she stuck to her her beliefs and and stuck to the data and worked so hard to turn our community out so that we could represent in in the get out the vote efforts that that made such a tremendous difference. Um, There's so many things that are happening, uh, but in addition to to sort of to to COVAX and all that's happening at the geopolitical level, I'm also deeply committed to engaging underrepresented communities Mm -hmm. uh, in in civic engagement and education activities. And I actually am the immediate past chair of the Georgia Muslim Voter Project and have been incredibly committed to turning out Muslim votes in, and it's completely nonpartisan, but turning out Muslim votes in Georgia, 
and around the country and engaging American Muslims in running for office, being educated about the people who are running for office and making sure that their voice is heard. So, you know, like I said, I, I, my, the lenses that I look through are realism, but also optimism. And there was an incredible increase in the turnout of votes uh, across the nation, but also particularly here in Georgia. And certainly, you know, as we, as we sit here in 2021, um, we see the, the fierce pushback coming, but I'm hopeful more than ever um, that we are, we are better, better than we could ever be, than we ever could imagine when every single person in our community, in our society has their voice heard. So I'm a, I'm a big believer in democratic representation and I'm a big believer in people representing themselves. We don't have to represent anyone. As my, as my friend, Dr. Suad says, mm -hmm. uh, pass the mic, pass the mic. Let me ask you this, because you mentioned Stacey Abrams, clearly considered a leader. And when we talk about engaging more women, young women and girls to be leaders, how do you envision we continue to do that? Oh, they 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 already are. You know, one of the things that we're going to do um, later today at the IWF International Women's Day program is hear from women and girls across Atlanta. I am more hopeful than ever. You know, I was um, in 2018, I was one of the plaintiffs in a voter suppression case when uh, when Stacey Abrams lost. You know, we won the federal case, but we we lost. And I remember people saying, um, oh, she, she just, you know, she's in over her head. She doesn't understand the dynamics. She can't make it happen. And I'll never forget Stacey Abrams said, um, we did not lose. We did not lose. We did not lose. And she was projecting this image that as an, as an African-American woman deeply connected to my, my ancestors, to my mother, my aunties, my nieces, and all these other women, I immediately understood what she was saying. Like there was just a listening there where she was saying, it may look like we have lost this battle, but we will win the war. And who knew that we'd be sitting here in 2021 and she'd be a Nobel Peace Prize on uh, nominee, and she'd have turned out more people to vote in the state in a historic election, and then got them to come back for a runoff. So when I look at examples like that, and Stacey Abrams is young, she's in her early 40s. When I look at her, and I see all of the young women around her, and when I talk to my colleagues in South Africa, and in Zambia, and in New Delhi and in India, and they know who Stacey Abrams is, I, I, I am incredibly hopeful because regardless of where you fall on the political spectrum, mm -hmm. you cannot deny that these are, these are the voices that have not been heard that we need to hear now and that need to be you know, welcomed and included at every table. So I'm more hopeful. When I look at these young sisters and, and, and brothers and women at, at Spelman College, at Agnes Scott College, on the global stage, on the national stage. They are incredible and I am more hopeful than ever. With this year's theme of choose to challenge, you and I both know sometimes there is a different, I don't want to put this, there's a different reaction and perception to women in leadership roles that could be based along the lines of race and ethnicity. Absolutely. When we talk about choose to challenge and you equate that to leadership, what do you tell young girls or other women about this road if they want to become a leader? 
Yeah, I mean, th these are true facts. These are, are real facts. We know for, we, we have data that, you know, people look at someone's name and make, you know, largely negative assessments and categorizations about a person. We know that when a woman of color walks into the room, she is immediately um, demoted in the minds of many. We know that she uh, works harder um, and has to produce more to get even um, minimal pay. We know that the numbers around pay equity for uh, men and women is, is, is unequal. And that if you're a woman of color, if you're a black woman or a Hispanic woman, it's even worse. Mm -hmm. um, so, so again, daunting data um, when it comes, very daunting data when it comes to what, what women um, have access to and how they are treated in our society. And again, I'm more hopeful than ever. Um, I, I just look at, you know, I'm 46. I look at when I went to college versus what I see young women going to college today and what they won't stand for, what uh, they speak up for, what they advocate for, what they have the ex expectation for. So I, I don't... Um, I, I don't ever try to uh, tell young women what they should be doing or how they should be doing it. I think that um, they are expressing themselves. When I think of people like Amanda Gorman, who spoke mm -hmm. at the inauguration, and I mean, how she just completely, you know, in, in such a global and universal way gave hope she doesn't need mentoring from me. She's amazing. <laughs> I, I, she, I want her to mentor me, you know? <laughs> And so I'm, I'm actually incredibly hopeful that young women are forging the way and innovating ways, not just about sort of um, succeeding in traditional environments that we know were not built to support us and to mm -hmm. nurture us, academia, jobs, et cetera, um, but they're creating environments and creating lives that work for them where they can succeed and thrive and not just get by. So again, I'll say I'm very, very hopeful. Will that be part of your message today? It will. We have some of the best and brightest women in and around Atlanta and the country that are going to speak. Pearl Klieg, who's an amazing playwright mm -hmm. and best-selling author. We have the folks who, who understand and know the data like People like Taifa Butler, who's mm -hmm. the president and CEO of the Georgia Budget and Policy Institute, who can really do a deep dive on the data for women and girls in Georgia. We have our you know, hometown heroes like Dr. Beverly Tatum, mm -hmm. president emeritus of Spelman College. We have Michelle Nunn, who's one of our leading practitioners, implementing programs here and abroad for women and girls and, and poverty alleviation and and supporting women in economic development and educational advancement. So we, we, this will be the topic throughout the day where we'll share the data so that people are grounded in facts. Um, and then we'll also share what we're doing, you know, things like maternal mortality, which mm -hmm. is on the rise in, in the United States and, and the highest increase has been here in Georgia. But, you know, this conversation around the increase of maternal mortality or women who die you know, in childbirth or postpartum mm -hmm. is acute here in Georgia, yeah. but it's also acute in India and in Zambia and in uh, Mali and Mauritania. So, so these these global these global um, issues are in fact global, right? They're here in America, but they're also 
in other countries. And we'll talk to the practitioners who are solving for them, who are um, looking for ways to alleviate and overcome and transform these really, these issues that have been intractable for, for years. Before we end our conversation, I want our listeners to learn a little bit more, Salim, about your global journey and your work in policy and advocacy. What's the origin story here? Ah, the origin story for me, I I was um, studying for the LSAT and I was interning at a law firm in New York and I was very clear that I did not want to be a lawyer. (laughs) (laughs) And... Um, or a lawyer in the way I, in the traditional sense. And so I, I had a really great mentor and in talking to him, um, it helped me to sort of clarify. And since, since I was about 25, I, I have said, I want to serve in, in the highest and best way, but I want to use the skills and talents that I have and learn new skills and talents. And since I made that my meditation, it really has happened that way. And, you know, I, I'm a product of uh, Hands-On Atlanta here mm-hmm. in, here in uh, Metro Atlanta. I worked there for many years and honed my project management skills um, and corporate service skills and community understanding. And from there was recruited to launch an effort that engaged African heads of state in their maternal and child health goals. And Mm -hmm. so we started in 2009 with eight African heads of state and in five years had every sitting African head of state and government on the continent. And it has been an incredible movement that has shown how to engage uh, political leaders at the highest level um, and has been independently evaluated and and, and proven to be Uh, helpful when it comes to women and girls at local country levels. And then from there, after after 13 years there, um, was recruited to the Gates Foundation, which is one of the leading institutions leveraging billions of dollars Mm -hmm. um, of money and technical expertise to further advance women and children. Melinda Gates, Bill Gates, our, our leader, our CEO, Mark Sussman, are all deeply committed to seeing equity when it comes to women and girls and equity when it comes to um, the COVID vaccine being distributed and making sure that women and girls have every opportunity to do and be who they want and who they decide to be in the world. So it's been an honor and a privilege to learn so much about implementation and strategy and listening, deep and profound listening at Mm -hmm. community level. Um, so I, I wouldn't, um, I, I couldn't have dreamed this big a dream for myself, and I'm, I'm grateful for the opportunity to continue to do good work. I was uh, viewing your TEDx that you were presenting at Georgia Tech, and you opened up by saying, I'm going to quote you, you know that, right? Go, go on, quote me, quote <laughs> me. You said, quote, I am Salima, I am a believing woman, I am firmly rooted in the black and Muslim experiences here in America. Yes. So who as we said that, that's me. That's me. <laughs> so that on that note, who I am. that's who you are. So what is your personal message to any young girl or woman out there listening who still may be trying to find their, their passion or still may be unclear about a certain path or journey? Ooh, trust and believe in yourself. Trust and believe in yourself. Trust and believe in yourself. And I know it's difficult. I know we get a lot of external messages in inside our houses, inside our communities, inside 
our institutions that may speak against you, but trust and believe in yourself. I was in a conversation just recently um, and it, 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 you know there, so there were some things said and it, it, it made me sad just a couple of weeks ago because I thought, you know, who would I be if I hadn't done so much adjusting under the gaze of other people, if I hadn't done so much massaging myself to be acceptable to other people. And one of the things that I think is beautiful about what young women have the opportunity to do more so than ever is to evolve um, truly as they would be. And I, I don't want that to sound so ethereal, but, but actually to, to know that the thoughts and feelings and experiences that you have are valid and that the, the whispering that you hear that's saying, go here, do this, don't do that, um, engage here, believe those things and, and follow those things because that's your, that is what we need is for more people to, to evolve and to, and, to, and to grow in an authentic way. And so that's what I would say to, to any woman is to trust and believe in yourself because really I do believe we all have it within us. We all have that guidance and that, that desire within us. And if, if, if we limit the external interruptions and the external input, we, we actually do quite well. Now, how do you limit the external interruptions? That is hard to do sometimes. It is hard. And I mean, that's a, that's a constant for me. You know, I'm, I'm taking a, a, a course now on rest, right? And, I, and I'm, <laughs> I'm, even, I'm even, you know, hesitant to talk about it because people will be like, oh, she's crazy, you know. But I know the impact of not resting. I know the impact on my mental, physical, and emotional health. And I also know that I am a better manager, a better worker, a better partner, a better participant when I am well rested. So why do I have to hide out and, 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 uh, and, and not tell people? The truth is I rest and that's, that's what fuels me. That's what allows me to listen to inner guidance. That's what benefits me um, in terms of the ideas that I can bring forth and what I can make happen. So. So it is, I know it, it, is, it is easier said than done in this world to mm -hmm. limit the external interruptions, but I do believe that each of us have, you know, sovereign nature, sovereign authority. And, you know, when a, when a young woman comes to me and says, well, what should I do? Which, and I'm like, ask, ask and, and meditate on it. And the answer will come. And you don't want me to tell you what to do. Mm -hmm. That's not, that would be a violation. Um, it, of me and of you, like you don't, each of us um, needs the, the, the experience of really listening to our own inner intuition and deciding, well, this is what I want to do. This is the direction I want to go in. Mm -hmm. And those, the, the noise is loud. The, the noise is loud. I, I won't admit that. And I'm blessed because I've had lots of support and, and I've had Umi <laughs> um, and others. But it, it is doable. And I, and I do think that um, I think that, you know, people understand what I say, even if they're like, she paid to go rest. Yes, I did. <laughs> I did. You should try it. You'll love it. You don't uh, have to tell anybody. Just try it. <laughs> words of wisdom. Salima <laughs> Abdul Ghaffour is a lecturer, activist, editor, chief of staff for the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Thank you so much for today's conversation on International Women's Day. I really enjoyed it. 
I really enjoyed you, Rose. And I just want to say again, I have listened to you for years. I'm a longtime listener. You have been such a light for so many people in this community here and around the country. I'm grateful for your continued programming and looking forward to seeing you continue to grow and evolve. And to, to all the listeners, I wish you the best on this International Women's Day and hope that in the way that makes sense for you, you'll engage in, in this work of International Women's Day. Limit the external interruption. That is my takeaway from today. I always learn something when I talk to you folks. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Salima. Can I say hi to mom? Hi, Umi. <laughs> we'll send you a shirt and a mug. If we can find a shirt. We don't know if you have any more shirts. <laughs> Thank you so much, Salima. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. My pleasure. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. The Metro Atlanta Chamber is spearheading a new regional initiative, calling it a multi-year, multi-step action plan. The ATL Action for Racial Equity is being created, I'm going to quote him here, to address effects of systemic racism impacting Atlanta's black community. And we're going to learn a lot more about this. Joining me now is Metro Atlanta Chamber President and CEO, Katie Kirkpatrick. Katie, thanks for taking the time. Welcome back to the program. Well, thank you. I think it has been several months since you and I had a conversation. And what's interesting is, is that um, our our dialogue today will build off of what you and I talked about mm-hmm. in June, which was an emphasis as I came into the role on, on three areas, uh, public health, uh, economic recovery, and then, of course, racial equity, which is what we're going to talk about today. You know, in the release regarding this initiative, I'm going to quote what Delta Airlines CEO Ed Bastian said. He said, quote, this is a moral and economic imperative as we work to grow our region's competitiveness today and into the future. And so, Katie, I imagine as it relates to the intersection of racism and business, you agree this is an an imperative, moral and economic, huh? I agree. Absolutely. It's moral and it's an economic imperative. And Rose, what I'll share with you is as we moved through the summer, uh, we were diligent in taking a look at data. I thought that was an important place to start. And I know that you know some of these statistics, Mm -hmm. um, but I think it's worth repeating. If a child is born into poverty in Atlanta, uh, it's a 4% chance of escaping poverty. Uh, Atlanta, unfortunately, also holds title to Um, the worst uh, income mobility Mm -hmm. uh, in the nation. Yet, we have um, an immense um, and uh, growing and expanding business community that is is highly successful. So that gap that exists, that disparity, um, is very important when you look at the data. Uh, And so as we we leaned into that data, it was really apparent. 
and I don't think surprising either, but in support of that moral and economic argument, uh, that it that as a business community, we are one of a larger group, but that there is action needed um, from the collective whole. Uh, and one last thing that I'd like to, to share with you, Rose, too, is that um, the late Tom Cunningham, who was mm -hmm. our chief economist, who mm -hmm. helped us um, underpin a lot of this work, did some analysis. And when he was looking at um, our, our Black community and our Black workforce, and, and he said, well, what if, what if all of the able-bodied um, you know, Black workforce were able to be gainfully employed skilled and you know filling the positions what would that look like in the in the pockets right what would that income distribution look like and we know that it would be roughly around a 500 million dollar positive impact and that's substantial so that really builds into that economic imperative um, but it's also a moral imperative as well so when we're talking about this and it's 2021 and that's a whole nother conversation um, because i think as a nation, we've been down this road before and folks trying to figure out, OK, what's at the core of this? And we know that systemic racism has been a big part of a lot of inequities that still exist and that are still around. So in your research and with this action plan, who other than, than, than Mr. Cunningham and, and what a, a great, great asset who else was involved in putting together this action plan? Because when you talk about something like this, you also have to have make sure you have representation of the folks that it will that you're directly trying to impact. You know what I'm saying? So do, do, take us through that. Who I do. was part of this this I, body? I do, and yeah, and I'm glad I'm glad that you asked that question too, because the genesis of the work too, right, was um, our business leaders really listening. Uh, especially in that May-June timeframe, to their workers, right, mm -hmm. who were really elevating their voices and sharing what I say in some instances heart-wrenching stories of experiences either in the workplace or in the community. And I think that really drove us toward this action. So when we were thinking about how do we build a plan, um, we began um, by identifying, of course, the data also looking at where um, business strengths would intersect with it. And then of course, who did we need to talk to? Mm -hmm. Who did we need to hear from? And so I always start with the worker, right? So several business leaders, Ed Bastian um, was certainly one of them. Uh, Raphael Bostic, who mm -hmm. is the president of the Atlanta Fed Reserve Bank and has been very outspoken on this issue. And Rose is our 2022 chair of the chamber. Uh, and that hopefully will also help the continuity on this um, initiative as well. Mm -hmm. uh, we had folks like Jay Bailey sure. uh, with the Russell Center for Innovation. Um, I'm trying Wendy Stewart with Bank of America, mm -hmm. uh, uh, Latrice Ryan with the Atlanta Wealth Building Initiative, uh, and so there was a steering committee that we put put together of, and I'm 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 not naming all the names. I wish I sure. did. Michael Russell, um, others. Um, but after we got through that process and had them really kind of push hard mm -hmm. on, on not only the data, but what actions could be taken. And I think that was a really clear direction was this can't just be a pledge. It has to be actionable and we measurable. And that's very important. So I'll close by saying this. As we um, got to the end of putting together what I would tell you is a possible plan. It is not a perfect plan. It is a possible plan. Um, initiative. 
we did reach out to, I think, over 50 stakeholders mm -hmm. and briefed them on the initiative and asked for them to give us feedback. So anywhere from an Andy Young and a Bernice King mm -hmm. um, to Nathaniel Smith uh, and others in the community, just making sure Kevin Muriel uh, with Cascade United Methodist Church, making sure that we shared the information, but we also listened back. And so that is how we landed where we are today. But I do want to ask you about this, because when it comes to racial equity, and you've got a lot of businesses who have signed on committing to diversity and inclusion, but when it relates to racial equity, we know that it also, uh, that means you should address wages and salaries, for example. Are you all taking any, are there, is there any initiative tied to that? And maybe perhaps the minimum wage increase, are you all tackling that? Yeah, so if let me let me at least share with you um, the way that we have structured mm -hmm. um, the initiative, and I'll be as quick as I can. Um, but we identified four areas initially. So the first is corporate policies. Mm -hmm. The second is inclusive economic development. The third is education, and the fourth is workforce development. Each one of them has a problem statement and key performance indicators underneath it. So to get to the question around pay, if you look under corporate policies, one of the key performance indicators is pay equity. Mm -hmm. We are asking our businesses that are committing to this initiative to move through the process of performing not only a review of pay equity, but implementing where change needs to happen. And so I think that's an important step to, the, to your question about addressing um, you know, the equity piece as it relates to salary. Um, as it relates to minimum wage and living wage, uh, as an organization, we don't currently have a position on that. Mm -hmm. uh, but I do want to pull back for a second um, and say that when we look in the totality of this initiative, it is largely driven by um, wealth creation in the Black community. Mm -hmm. And that is one thing that didn't, I don't think I touched on is this is a plan specifically built for the Black community black businesses and black talent. And an important component of that is building wealth and generational wealth for the community. Finally then, that being the case, how do you all measure? I mean, this is a multi-step, multi-year action plan. Um, of course, obviously it takes more than a few years. You're talking about building black wealth and generational wealth, but how do you measure these actual outcomes? How do you measure that you're meeting or, or do you have goals? How do you measure that? No, absolutely. We do. We have um, more than, gosh, it's not, it's more than a dozen. It may be even close to 18 or 19 key performance indicators that we have identified. And on an annual basis, we uh, will uh, perform an assessment and give a report to the community on what progress is being made. And, and Rose, I am an engineer. Mm -hmm. And so I, I think very linear, linear fashion and in a rational fashion, and I believe that if we don't measure, then how do we make progress? And so this was a key component, not only from, from my perspective, but also from the business leaders that um, we have to measure, we've got to see where progress is being made. And quite honestly, Rose, if something isn't working, then we need to change course. And it's okay to say that it didn't work. Um, but I think that, that honesty um, and transparency with the community will help this initiative be successful. And we'll have a link on our website to the ATLRacialEquity.com website as well for more information. 
Metro Atlanta Chamber President and CEO Katie Kirkpatrick. Thank you so much for taking the time. As always, we want to bring you all back. We want to make sure this is something that we stay on top of and make sure our listeners are well-informed of this initiative. Thank you, Rose. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is always Atlanta's choice for NPR, and I'm always Rose Scott. As we know, 2020 presented a lot of challenges to colleges and universities across the country. We know that. Why? Well, they're all faced with how the pandemic was impacting higher education. And joining me now to talk about how they have dealt with all this from Brunel University, Dr. Ann Sclater, president of the university. President Sclater, thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Oh, Rose, I'm delighted to be here. Thank you for having me. Let's begin with the age-old question. Bri now, bri now, because everybody I talk to pronounces it differently. (laughs) Yes, Uh, it is bri now. All right, there we go. Now that we got that out the way. If I can tell you, it's two words. Uh It's the German word for wood and the... And in gold, so it's gold refined by fire, so that's why it's for now. But you got it perfectly. Well, I've been practicing all weekend, trust me. <laughs> um, let's just begin here and get your thoughts, because tomorrow marks one full year since the first coronavirus cases were confirmed here in Georgia. And, you know, then folks were starting to talk about, hey, we got to get tested. What do you make of all this uh, this last year? It has been a year like no other, and I'm not the first person to say that, of course. Uh, I, I think what it did for us at Brunel is showed that we are, in fact, um, forged in fire and able to continue to be for 144 years tested by challenges from the external environment. So this isn't the first and it won't be the last, but I'm super proud of how our community has come is continuing to come through. We are not over yet. It is not over yet. No, let's, for our listeners who may not be aware, uh, for your campus and the campus that we're talking about here in Gainesville, you all have, where are you now? Is it in person? Is it uh, a little bit of a hybrid, a mixture of both? Rose, what I'm really proud about is we are doing all of the above. And because we have about 25 years of experience in online, we're able to, we were able to pivot, but many classes are, partially in person, partially Zoom, partially online. And it's all dependent upon the preference and comfort level of the student and comfort level of the faculty member. And it just seems to be working in this way. But here's what's interesting also, um, Madam President, because also you're in a community, you're in the Gainesville community, which, as we both know, this is an area of Georgia that was hit hard by uh, the virus. So did that play a decision at all in your decision making about whether or not to, you know, allow all the students and faculty and staff to come back to campus? Right. Well, actually, Rose, we didn't allow everyone to come back to mm-hmm. campus. So we're at about 30 percent of staff and faculty actually physically on one of our campuses, the downtown or the or the east or the or the or the historic campus. Mm-hmm. Our students are a mixture. And, you know, one of the things we learn because our we have a high proportion, we're a minority serving institution, high proportion of first generation, low income is that for some students being on campus was the best place to be. Mm-hmm. 
because it's hard to take classes at home when you have a lot of people, perhaps at your home, you don't have stable Wi-Fi, uh, and it may be that being on campus is what you need to do. So we really tried to meet the needs of students and the needs of, uh, of our faculty and staff. So we are nowhere near 100% uh, capacity. We're about 50% in our residence halls, mm -hmm. so that we have plenty of room to spread out should we have a case, uh, and nobody is on top of each other. You mentioned that since you all have been offering online uh, courses, this was the shift for you wasn't as I guess, traumatic or, 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 you know, didn't the challenges wasn't like it was for some other colleges and universities. But did you get any pressure? Did you feel any pressure from either students or the community to to either go one way or the other because of where you are and located in Gainesville? That, that's a great point. Actually, there were preferences on both sides. Mm -hmm. We had faculty who who absolutely did not want to go online because they wanted their students to be with them in class. And we had others who had risk factors of their own family members, and they really could not feel comfortable being in a classroom. We have a lot of healthcare professions. It's very difficult to teach nursing online, yeah. uh, the hands-on part of it, or, or a physician assistant or physical therapy, all of which we have occupational therapy. So they have been super creative as all of our faculty have in figuring out what can we do? Mm -hmm. What must we do face to face? What can we do uh, online? Telehealth, telemental health mm -hmm. um, has been fantastic for those fields, psychology, et cetera. We know that the pandemic has has in a, in a tremendous financial toll on many colleges and universities. Uh, how would you describe the financial health of Brunel right now? How have you been able to withstand this uh, financially? Yeah, well, Brunel is a, fortunately went into the pandemic as a very strong, uh, financially strong institution. We have a lot of different types of students. Mm -hmm. So when we knew we were going to have to have fewer students on campus because uh, for safety reasons, for, for our culture of prevention, we knew that we had online students in programs already that would that would generally stay in those programs. So we fortunately have a lot of different student segments to help us, but it's a challenge every day, Rose. I'm not gonna, mm -hmm. I'm not gonna lie to you. It, it, we're looking constantly for ways to continue to educate, continue to have that culture of prevention, continue to conti continue operations uh, and find ways to save everywhere we can. In some ways we're saving because we're not going on trips. We're mm -hmm. not, going on conferences, we're not hosting events. You know, that's sad that we're not doing that, but that does help balance the score a little bit. Um, but we were able to make it through last year in, in the black and we're hoping that, you know, we're planning for this year to be the same. Here's a line that everyone I have a conversation with, particularly with presidents of universities and colleges, and they say, you know what, I'm gonna, and even right down to superintendents, we're gonna follow the science, I'm gonna follow the mm -hmm. science. I imagine you all are following the science, but science has been changing. We have to be fair about that throughout this you last know, year. It has. And the way I like to think about it is the science isn't changing. Our understanding of the science is changing. So we're getting smarter. And I don't know about you, but I feel like I should get uh, some kind of epidemiology uh, graduate degree because <laughs> a colleague of mine said I'm a college president in the daytime and an epidemiologist at night. So um, we are following it. We, we call it our culture of prevention. Mm -hmm. So we started out day one masked 100%. We mm -hmm. started out day one distanced 100%. We started out with uh, hand washing. And then Hall County did a 
a new thing called Hall In, which is all three of those W's plus the flu shot. So we, we've just been pushing that and pushing that. And, and frankly, we just had a discussion. Do we need to talk about two masks? And came to the conclusion that we really want to talk about one snugly fitting mask. So we really are following. And fortunately, we have fabulous faculty mm-hmm. uh, and, and, and staff in the healthcare area in our COVID task force that are meeting weekly and studying this daily. Have folks been, uh, has there been testing available on campus throughout all of this? We are very fortunate, Rose, that we have a a business in our business incubator Mm -hmm. uh, that does testing. And so from the very beginning, we were able to, almost the very beginning, we were able to do testing that comes back in about 24 hours. Mm -hmm. And we do strategic testing and we do random testing. So you've had- that's been a godsend. You've had no- isolated outbreaks that that you know of we have had cases yes you've had Um, cases but oh yeah Mm -hmm. yeah but what happens is we have we have housed for example all the athletes in with each other so if there's a tennis outbreak then five tennis players are isolated together and they're not affecting the rest of the campus so there's Mm -hmm. been a strategy in our covid task force around all of those kinds of things but yes we of course have had faculty, staff, and students with COVID. As the vaccine rollout now includes another provider with Johnson & Johnson, uh, there are concerns that people might get a little lax and sort of, you know, let up their guard here. What concerns do you have? Well, I will tell you that I do a weekly video. We figured out that my colleagues figured out that I've done about a hundred of these. So I do a video every week. I did them almost every day at the beginning. And I end with the three W's, the flu. And now I'm, I'm doing a don't let up. We can't let up. We, we didn't work this hard for an entire year to let our guard down now. And, you know, the fact that you get a vaccine does not mean you can't carry it to someone else. And mm-hmm. so we're trying to emphasize that. And I, I have seen such compliance on our on our campuses um, that I am hoping that this does not change as the vaccine as we have more and more vaccinated people on our campuses. Let's talk about when you are hopeful that you all can return to some on campus activities or look, we know what the big ones coming up, right? Graduation. You got to feel for so many of the students college, high school, what have you, kindergarten, who couldn't graduate, you know, in front of, in front of mom and dad and big mama. But, um, how optimistic are you that at some point you all will be able to have some, some event where you can invite folks Well, we will have some event. In fact, our provost is finalizing with his faculty group, um, a series of celebrations of graduation. They will be mass, they will be distanced, they will be limited in terms of how many of those relatives can come, but it'll be live streamed. Um, and we will we will do that this spring. And then we will also have a whole series of end of semester events mm-hmm. that we will just do differently as we've been doing other things differently. Um, and we're hoping that this is the last one of those big event situations where we have to drastically change the way we do it. Let's talk about you as we end this conversation, your leadership style. And I've said this so many times, I know there is no Nothing in the pa- in the handbook about how to deal with a pandemic on a college campus. I don't care what anybody says. <laughs> no, <laughs> there's going to be one now. But um, how do you? How would you assess your leadership in all of this? And were there times where you just simply you were you were at a crossroads and you needed to to check in with other folks? How did you handle oh, all of this? I, Rose, that is such a great question. I would say we check. I checked in with my colleagues 
daily and definitely weekly we would sit down we still sit down we'll be sitting down tomorrow morning at nine o'clock and going through all of the updates and all of the decisions we need to make we even talk about the decisions we're not yet making and when we're going to make them presumably so i my leadership has has is a hundred percent getting the group together and getting the wisdom of the people in that room uh virtually um, it, it, at every turn, because none of us were trained for this. Mm-hmm. None of us were trained for this. Has this also, I imagine, impacted whatever strategic plan that you had for the future for this institution? By the way, you are the first woman to be the president of Bernal? I am. I'm proud of that fact, and I hope uh, I, I hope it's a, it's a good thing for our students to see a woman, it's considering we're still 75% women at the university, so. Um, yes. <laughs> The strategic plan is is alive and well. In fact, it's one of our many accomplishments of the year that I'm really proud of. We've moved. We're moving forward. We're looking at mission, vision, and our our major strategies. We, I mean, we just elevated our psychology school, the Darby School. Um, we're moving into the Renaissance Building, the Gainesville Renaissance downtown. We um, we launched a physician assistant program in January. Um, and I was elbow bumping with everybody over there because I was so excited. So we, we're continuing to achieve where our diversity, equity and inclusive excellence uh, process moves on and marches on. I just met with those folks the other day. So, you know, we have we have kind of a motto that we're going to continue business. Mm-hmm. We're open for business. Bernal's open for business, open for education. It's just we're doing it in a different way. Mm-hmm. And we should note, too, that last year, amid all the the protests and calls for racial justice and social justice, you were out there with some of the students. The students invited me on their walk to the square and um, allowed me to give some remarks. And I was happy to talk about our Brunel ideal, which says that we hate never and, and and we fear nothing and we love. And that is what I talked about. Dr. Ann Sclater is president of Bernal University. Dr. Sclater, thank you so much for taking time. I really appreciate it. We've got to have you come back as as, as, as uh, we continue to check in with universities and colleges. So I would love to come back. Your show is great, and I appreciate being on it. Thank you for that. I appreciate it. Take care now. Take care. Bye-bye. And that's it for this edition of Closer Look, which is produced by Grace Walker and LaShawn Hudson. Our engineer is Kevin Rinker. If you missed any of today's program, it's online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, Closer Look weeknights at 8 p.m. as well as in our podcast. So subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in, a WABE politics podcast. New name, same on-the-ground reporting from us, WABE politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally. We'll cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform. 
WABE.